G'day ladies and gents, welcome to Life of Mine, the go-to mining podcast, Matty Michael here. Now first up, I want to put a special mention out to any involved in the bushfires that are unfortunately engulfing our nation currently. There's plenty of fundraisers going around on Facebook, please chuck in whatever you can. It's just horrible for so many people and all the firefighters putting their lives on the line, just fucking good on you. Thanks so much for doing what you all do. If the big fellas upstairs is going to do anything, please send us some rain to the eastern states. They bloody need it desperately. Anyway, on to what we've got for you today. It's the third instalment of the 2019 highlights package, which is all the technical and corporate highlights for the year. And there is shitloads. You're going to hear from Shane McClay on how he started NTEC. Tristan Summerford on pretty much how to design a whole bloody mine. Billy Beamant makes an appearance as per usual. I hit him up on whether Northern Star are smart or just bloody lucky. And even Mal Major from Sandvik talking about the future of battery use in underground mines. And that's only to name a few. So, you've all got full permission to take notes, claim the knowledge as your own. And we had some awesome yarns in 2019. So let's go back in time. Here we go. Right, first cab off the rank, Craig Jones. Now, at the time of the interview, which was an early adopter of Life of Mine, thanks, Jonesy. Jonesy was a one-man show at Cadgy Mining, but now is Chief Operating Officer at Bellevue Gold. You would have seen him spruiking it on LinkedIn lately. He reckons it's his missus's idea. Doing great, Jonesy. Anyway, Jonesy, being a very reputable manager and mining engineer, talked about how to be visible in the workplace and the benefits of it, and also drawing on the experience of the whole team. Jonesy was my first GM. Absolute legend of a bloke. Let's see what Jonesy had to say. Early days. Well, second interview, I think. Here we go. Being a dad yeah. certainly changed your perspective. Yeah. Um, you know, my kids are all going to be 15 and 13, you know, in the next month or so. Um, but you have to explain things differently. And, you know, you, you don't you don't appreciate that, how you can apply that in a, in a work sense of how you need to get your message across, you know, to the guys in the industry because you have to keep explaining things. Yep. And, you know, you can't just put it out in a memo and flash it up on a, on a safety board and, and everything happens. You know, you've got to... From my point of view, you've got to get out of the office, you've got to be down the hole, you've got to see the guys in their workplace, ask them about it, talk to them about it, explain what you want as a manager for this whatever issue that you're dealing with um, to be dealt with. You know, when you're a dad, you, you can't say something to your kid and it happens. Yep. You know, you're a young dad and you've got a long road ahead of you, but, you know, saying something once or even twice to your kid doesn't happen. And well, as, as long as you accept, you know, and I'm – I say it a lot in, in my career as well, but, you know, it's lifelong learning. Like, I don't know, you know, half the stuff that goes on because I'm still learning about everything that goes on. So, And you've got to draw on all the experiences that everyone brings to the table, and they're all different. They've all yeah. been at different minds. They've all had different exposures to different things. Um, just because you've done it once doesn't mean that was the right way to do it. Yeah. And there was, or there isn't a better way to do it or anything like that. So you've got to use the whole team, um, you know, to get the best out of the whole team. Right, cheers, Jonesy. Thanks very much, and best of luck in the new ventures, mate. I'll hopefully get you on for another 2020 yarn. Right, next up, uh, Matt Michael, me, one of my early freestyle attempts back in the uh, when the monotone was at its uh, full-time best. I did an engineering episode, tips for engineers based on all my bloody stuff-ups. Episode number eight. Now, a couple of uh, ones I was pretty good at was dropping me lick when I went on the truck, 
and uh, how to, but also one of the better things I did learn was how to learn off performance during your early days as an engineer in an underground time and also how to take that through for the rest of your career. Let's see what monotone Matt Michaels got to say. Don't drop your lip when you're on the fucking truck for a couple of months. You just, it's, it's going to happen. Some people get pretty lucky. Um, but in a lot of cases, you get chucked on a truck and you're going to have to do it for two to three months sometimes. And usually it's because the, the, until someone is going to fill that position for you so you can move on to nipper, you'll, you'll be stuck on a truck and you've just got to wear it. It's, it's three months. Oh, I know I bloody sucked hard. And as I said, please learn from my mistakes. But if you sit there, sook and drop your lip, it's just everyone notices it and you'll probably just stay on the truck for bloody ever. If you, but you've just got to try, try go in with a positive attitude and really try and get the most out of it. And look, make it make it fun while while you're on, while you while you're doing your truck time. Have a chat to the bogger operators. Hit them, hit them. Try learn off the bogger operators. Say, oh look, how do you just? Uh, can you give me a rundown on the stuff you do while you're loading? Where where you put the buckets? How many buckets you put on? What sort of what sort of stuff are you looking for? Um, anything you can anything you can do to learn learn more about the loading and haulage cycle. So once you get once if you've done three months on the truck and you sort of feel like you're not getting anywhere, yeah, you're probably probably time to sort of speak up. But again, when you're gonna when you're gonna ask about oh when I'm when am I gonna get off the truck? Again. It's all about the demeanour and the attitude you take into that conversation. You don't want to go in and say, "Ah, oh, I've been on the truck for three months. I'm an engineer. Or I'm better than this fucking yeah." Because then you know what? They'll, and they'll keep you on the fucking truck for another six months. Um, when you do go and ask that question, say, "Look, I've, I've done with three months on the truck. When when can I be looking at sort of going nipper and service crew?" And so again, it's all about having those respectful conversations because usually there's that much shit going on in a mine that the managers have got way bigger th- worries in the world than the engineers sitting on the truck. Now, the biggest tip during this grad stage I can give, as I, as I said before, you're going to be doing a lot of familiarisation, a lot of probably tours around with uh, shift bosses and everything. Now, you've got to latch on to the foremans and the shift bosses. If you can, they, they are the blokes that they've been mining the longer than you've been alive and they have seen everything they've seen it at different mine sites and you've you'll only even after a bloody decade in the industry you're only scratching the surface so if you can form a good rapport with shift bosses and foremans and just look just if you've got to buy them a beer or whatever just say look can i just come for a run with the underground in the morning if you can hang around these blokes because they, they are just knowledge powerhouses they're the guys you want to learn off. It, you can sit in the office all day and learn stuff off the piece of paper from the engineers and everything, but if you want you want the real practical knowledge of how underground mining works, they're the guys that are going to give it to you. Right, good on you, Matt Michael. Jeez, bloody. I actually remember that night. I was actually coming off night shift, so I couldn't sleep, so I was up at 2am, and I went into the kids' toy room to freestyle record that tried not to wake the missus up and it's pretty apparent in the tone of the voice it was bloody horrible looking back at it but anyway had to start somewhere righto next up shane mcclay top top 
at Entech. And Macca goes into the story about how he started Entech. Pretty awesome story. He probably didn't feel too awesome at the time because he goes through how he got shot from his job and how that led to how he started Entech. Awesome bloke. Macca's coming on at the end of the month talk about a mine flood disaster he was involved in. Looking forward to it. He's a bit of Macca. Oh, now, now, regarding regarding your time at um, Leonora, now every, everyone's probably thinking, oh, I wonder if you wonder, wonder if he's going to ask the big question. I'm just going to ask yeah, you straight out. What the hell did you bloody do wrong there, Shane? Yeah. So um, <laughs> for listeners, there, I um, I came in one Monday morning and uh, got shot after nearly four years there. So um, yeah, I, I, I think that's just what happens: is change of management above and. Um, people might not agree with the way you do things and uh, I never I never got told why I got shot which was really interesting but um, came into the Perth office on a on a Monday morning at 7am for an early meeting I had to be there and 7.30 I was out the door with an envelope and a taxi voucher <laughs> oh, and, I, love, uh, I love the taxi voucher yeah just, uh, yeah no uh, Got the ta- I used it. I used it. <laughs> Bloody oath, you would. Did you get free parking as well? Or? <laughs> no, I didn't drive actually. But um, so that was that was pretty handy. So yeah, um, so yeah, that was um, uh, as a life changing in many ways for me. You know, I'd never have done what I did with Entech if it wasn't for that. Um, I thought I was heading down the the path of you know next job CIO and and you know that that sort of path. Um, but yeah, I uh, I was walked out onto the street and rang my wife and uh, said I don't work there anymore, and it was just um, an amazing experience. And and I feel for people who go through that. Yeah. And um, I had good support from you know people that I know in the industry from that point. Um, you know, two days later, uh, you know, Dean Will he found out about it, rang me and said let's go for lunch, and he said look I've been there, it'll be fine. You know, there'll be a light at the end of the tunnel and, and you know, gave me a cuddle, not literally, but yeah. um, maybe he did, I don't know. But anyway. You uh, probably gave him one, I'd reckon. But, uh, you know, j- just those conversations that you have with people mean a lot and uh, I've done the same thing. Or, you know, you see you see people, oh, you know, he's been shot, whatever, um, give him a call. That's all I can say. Give him a call and say, you know, how you going? And that's, that's really important. Um, so yeah, I'd, I'd definitely do that today um, and help people out too, you know, like um, I, I know in our business, we've got spare desks and if someone finds themselves out in the street, just say, come in and come in and make some calls from our office or, you, you know, if you need the boardroom, use it or here's a mining news account, you know, oh, sorry, mining news, but, uh, <laughs> you know, just, just let them use one and, you know, do a bit of research and, you know, just the little things that cost you nothing, but they mean a lot. Yeah. And those people, you know, six months down the track, they're working for XYZ company and they go, Jesus, you know, these guys looked after us and, you know, oh, you've got a job for you. Oh, beautiful. So what goes around comes around. It's such a, you know, in this industry, you've got to go long because, um, you know, it's it's, everyone's got long memories and, uh, you know, if you do something by someone, do the right thing, it'll, it'll pay you back double. And I suppose, yeah. and I suppose you can, and you can fully say to people, just say, "Look, I know what you're going through." Yeah. Like far I've been that, there, mate. That I've point, I just, yeah, I, I just think of 
And it's as far I suppose when you get to that GM role and you, you, your life just becomes accustomed to it. You you, yeah. you get a nice house, you get a nice car, and just and it gets ripped away from you in an instant. Like just as yeah. you said, when you walked out that door, just the the feeling of that in your body. Yeah, just, well, it's you a, know, it was it was very personal because it was you know it wasn't like redundancy when the mind's going to shit and you know everyone gets made redundant. Yeah, okay, that's. I'm sure that's not a great feeling either, but this is kind of the step beyond where, oh, you, uh, you, you, you're gone. Yeah. You know, you, you, so it's very personal. You know, it's obviously you that they don't want. And, um, yeah, you gotta, you gotta own it, I suppose, yeah. and learn from it and move on. So yeah, pretty tough. What were your, what were your first steps? Did you try and get work straight away or? My first step is I got the taxi voucher and I, uh, I went to Deanmore Primary School uh, Kindergarten where my daughter was and I spent the next month or two there helping yeah, me out right. cutting oranges and uh, <laughs> I built a, uh, a an egg carton fort which was uh, monumental. <laughs> uh, it was pretty good. It took me a couple of days but uh, that's what I did. So I just spent time with my family and, and my daughter. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. So, oh, it's good to, good to see you didn't do the uh, stereotypical thing you see in movie and grow a massive beard and end yeah. up on the piss every night. No, 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 not at all. So, um, yeah, I got good support from my wife and, uh, yeah, and my friends. And, you know, probably this probably leads on to how NTEC started. It was kind of because like, I don't like, you know, I never like consultants, you know. I, I just, well, you know, I just thought they were bloody fleas of the industry but um but what so you know I, I got calls and it was like oh you know Macca can you help us out with this oh, um yeah okay oh well, you, you got to send me an invoice and I was like well I don't know how to send an invoice what are you, <laughs> what's what on that yeah what are you talking about <laughs> can't you just pay me no no you got to send me an invoice and it was kind of and I thought oh well maybe I can start you know just to get an ABN and be a one-man band and um you know maybe that's what I do and very quickly realized that that wasn't a great model in that, you know, you're a resource, you've got certain skills and yeah, you could do a one man band, but you're going to be super busy one minute and you're going to have, yeah, you know, a lot of risk next, well. you know, yeah. so, um, so very quickly, um, you know, put a business plan together and, um, <laughs> and to be brutally honest, it was titled things I hate about consultants. <laughs> <laughs> and and I wrote those dot points and I built the business model around that. Yeah, right. And um, yeah, so tried to be tried to be different, um, do things a different way. And I suppose it comes around transparency. So you know, when we send an invoice, for example, it says exactly what we did. Yeah. You know, there's nothing worse. I used to get these invoices would be you know, da 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 consulting thirty grand. I was like, what the is this for you know and then yeah. you go off but if the next page shows exactly what you did it was like yeah. oh yeah okay oh yeah i did ask him to do that you know worries yeah you know so and you know charging for photocopying and taxis and you know how much are you charge me an hour and you want me to pay eight bucks for parking you know it's you know it pisses you off as Take, a client taking the piss, yeah, yeah. yeah so you just say well that's the right boom this is what we did yeah, yeah. no worries so so i built the business around that and um targeted the good people and you know my first employee Evan is still working with us today yeah. um, and probably my second, third and fourth are too as well, you know. So we, um, it was all about targeting the good people and it wasn't about being the biggest. Um, but yeah, we, we built a, a good little group. Um, yeah, having, having a lot of fun. 
Yeah, you always wonder how blokes like Macca can get sacked because they're such good blokes. That's the thing that uh, perplexed me the most. Now, Macca actually let me back into the office after that. Let me interview uh, Tristan Summerford, Nevin McKern. First up, I got Tristan Summerford, one of the one of his prodigy engineer childs, and I got a few off Tristan. Here, a couple of snippets. What? One about doing a feasibility study, another methodical approach to mine design, also how to design for a DFS early days, and also how Trizzo put his uh, underground time into practice back in the office. Here we go. So you did a bit of on-site stuff early, but um, and then kind of started looking at, at DeGrusa. So that was uh, that, and that was totally different. You mm. know, like. Um, just the stuff you learn and the things you've got to think about on those feasibility studies. You just, you know, it blew my mind. I'm not going to yeah. say that it'll blow everyone's mind, but, you know, it blew my mind. You kind of go, okay, pumping, not just pumping drill water, but all right, what do we have to pump to clear the mine before we even get there? You know, yeah. where are we going to put dewatering bores? You know, where are we going to put these kind of big, big pump stations and things like that? And, um, yeah. And this is based on like inferred and indicated resor- resources. Like yeah. they're not even. That's you, right. You're just trying to predict stuff with absolutely bugger all information. <laughs> that's that's right. And I guess that's kind of what I've learned over the years is that um, you get these ore bodies and and you you plan for what it is going to be, and then it'll change, and you've mm. just got to be prepared for that and don't be precious about it because it's going to yeah. change and and uh i don't think any one of my feasibility designs has made it to operations it's always been mm. adjusted so yeah you, uh, you you've um got to kind of park the ego and just realize that yeah that's well, just the way it is and, and yeah. you can't get too upset about it did you better early days did you sort of take it to heart a bit you know, uh, because of the, the work you the hard well, work you did well, i think I, took, I didn't take the the fact that people would change it i just took i think i you know like i said lots of people would do it different ways and and someone would come in and say no it's rubbish I, i'd do it this way and you kind of get stuck in this loop of just arguing about who's right and yep. it's it yep. yeah and, and and there's no no real reason it's just someone's going no, i like it that way and yep. um and and yeah, and I've done it. I've done it to people as well, and yeah, you know, gone. No, I'd, I'd if I was going to do it, I'd do it that way. Not, yeah. not that you have to do it that way, but that's how I would do it. Um, but yeah, it's it's just a funny one where you kind of yeah, you get a bit attached to it because you do spend a bit of time on it, and you mm. you think you've done a good job thinking about all the things that could go into it, and then someone comes in that hasn't been looking at it, and they see something, and you're like. Can't believe I didn't see it. Yeah, can't yeah. believe I didn't see it. Like the last thing you should be designing is your decline. Absolutely, yeah. Like absolutely. You work out from your yeah, like exactly. Who, gives it, who cares about the decline? Like yeah. it does. You make it fit at the end. Yeah, know, yeah, it? for sure. You know, and 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 yeah, that is that is the process. It you know, well, that's the process we use anyway. And and it's get those stopes. It's all about that. And then because you know it, the decline. If it's a really flat ore body, you might just need a big flat long drive, you know. And um, you know, if it's sub vertical, the decline could be just a simple little spiral or you know whatever. But um, it's all about yeah, just trying to maximise how you extract that ore body and and getting those those stopes done. And 
um, you know, working out the best sub level and things like that because, you know, lots of mines is 20 or 25 metres and it's just yeah. why is it? Well, just because. <laughs> exactly. And, and there's no real, you know, I mean, some some science goes into it and, um, um, you know, I'm sure that, you know, lots of mines work that work well at that that sub level because you look at you know if it's kind of narrowish you don't want to be drilling really long holes with a small rig so um yeah you've got to kind of think about those kind of considerations but um yeah there's there's nothing saying you can't have a 28 meter sub level if that's going to be the best thing for that ore body yeah and then yeah yeah, work backwards from there do your ore drives work out where you want to have your access and then kind of go okay now the decline needs to hit those access points yeah yeah Yeah. is there any sort of general i guess tips and tricks for the yeah just your decline design um i I know it's just it just varies so much with your bodies and as you said your level spatians which um Mm. affects your curvature and your gradient like look and and the same thing about decline gradients people think oh the decline has to be one in seven that's right doesn't doesn't have to be it can be one in eight can be one in seven point Bloody the jumbos are going to bloody hook them down anyway. <laughs> but even just um, for guys out there designing declines, what what about like anti-clockwise, clockwise radiuses of curvature? Like what what sort of stuff? I guess have you put in your arsenal over the years? Um, I do it pretty. Um, I, I I think it's pretty simple the way I do it. I look at right sub level, and I generally go one and seven because. Yeah, and then there are a few mines and a few operators going at one and six and a half on the declines and, and the truck's getting better so they can do it. Um, but I generally try and stick to one and seven, you know, obviously minimises kind of cost. Um, and I'll, I'll look at sub-level and go, right, I know that I have X amount of metres based on this sub-level where I can get from one point to another yeah. and then kind of look at what, what curvature I could have and how much that chews up of that amount of meters, you know, um, and then go, okay, well, can I have a figure of eight? Can I have a race course style, you know, fucking horse track style decline? Um, or does it have to be a spiral? If it's a spiral, how tight's the curvature, you know, because you don't really want to go too tight either. And sometimes it's a necessity, um, because it depends, again, depends on mining method. If all your accesses are stacked up beautifully, you know, a spiral kind of makes sense, but you, you get a few people talking about, you know, issues with trucks and things just, you know, wear and tear on the gear and a spiral. Yeah. So, um, you know, it, 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 I treat it pretty pretty simply, but pretty methodically. I just look at level space and go, right, I, it is, I have this many metres. Yeah. Basic mathematics is I've got this many metres to get from one point to the next and then can I have a 25-metre radius of curvature? Yes, no. Okay, can I? Can it be what? You know, what does it have to be? Yep. Um, to kind of line up those access points. And do you, I guess do you look at it now? Do you become pretty? Does your risk appetite change over the years when you're doing these sort of DFS designs? Like I guess you're knowing that there could be so much variation in the location of the ore when the mm. when the confidence goes up. Does your like say for decline standoffs or like does your risk appetite change and you become a bit risk averse, I'd say? No, I don't think I'd say that. I think um it depends on the level of study. Because if you're yeah. doing a scoping study you tend to go a bit harder at it. But the what I've also found with that is that if you go in too hard at that 
high level, at the scoping level, you you can bite yourself in the ass because you've penciled in all these, you know, real tight decline standoff, real t- you know, going hard with development, going hard with production, and then when you come to do the next level of study, everyone's kind of locked in on yeah you've got yeah. this and if you want to double that decline stand or for something like that then that's double the capital access meters and at five grand a meter that's not cheap yeah. so um i think i think i've become a little bit um i think i've tried to push those kind of scoping and those more high level studies to be a little bit more conservative rather than going really hard because yeah. i just have seen it bite you when you come to the next level and you've got more detail and you say oh actually we can't have the decline 20 meters it's got to be 35 40 meters away yeah. from the ore body and you can't go well that's and that, just- uh, which affects so much capital infrastructure like i know there's always a way but it's just yeah. that extra rework and vent systems and and, and, and and then you just look at and then you know you, people just look at the high level numbers and and decline or you know um capital access development's gone up you know 100 percent yep and might have increased development meters by 20 percent yeah and it's a kind of big cost so you kind of start to you start to try and think about how you sh- how it could potentially play out later on down the track yep um because and i've um what i what i have started to do is put in a diamond drill platform somewhere if it's you know if it's sub vertical or body you know you put one every kind of 100 meters vertical um you know nova was a classic we designed um and it was you know pretty flat really at um at depth so we designed a big diamond drill drive that basically covered the entire ore body and that was done in the very first design iteration we ever did yeah and it carried through every single design iteration and nobody ever questioned it yeah and it was probably three kilometers of development oh really shit so you you put that in halfway through it and someone goes what's that 3k's doing there now take it out cost too much yeah and but well hopefully they wouldn't but sometimes people get a bit you know you go we need to cut some costs how do we how do we do that and so it's kind of you try and try and forward forward plan and and in terms of all right what is this thing actually going to need and what are you going to put in right right at the end um you know well what's the layout going to be right at the end because if you if you kind of if you are putting it in halfway through and someone gets a shock i mean you can explain it to them and they might agree and go yep okay keep it in but sometimes these kind of things have to fall out Basically, my second swing there in the office, I was by myself. Everybody was on holiday, so I was the only person, only drill and blast guy there. And, um, you know, sub level cave is pretty easy. You just fire a ring at a time until you get to an intersection, and then you've got to fire the intersection out and you yeah. lose a bit of tonnage. But so I'd, you know, I'd be in the foreman's office going, right, oh, how am I going to fire across this intersection? Because I had no idea. You know? Yeah. And, um, I'd go down. I'd go down the hole with the foreman every day, and and did that at Jundee as well, and other places. So it's yeah, it was it was pretty daunting because you just kind of go in there knowing nothing really. Mm. Like you, th- you think you know it, yep. and then you get up there and you're like, oh, hang on, I've actually got to put it all into practice now, and yep. usually lean on a few people a bit, which I did, and and was lucky enough to have a few good people around me. So. Um, Jeez, I may as well just put Tristan's whole bloody episode in. After that, good on you, Trizzo. 
Hi, Paul's well, mate. Now, next up, another Entech man. One of the early early Entech guys himself, Evan McKern. He's the principal engineer at Entech and also the manager at Arvista, which is Entech's survey division, dealing with drones and other exciting stuff in the survey department. Now, Evan, he had a funny story about his underground time when he was a nipper. It involved a ute that wasn't on four wheels at some stage and I guess the future of underground drone technology mostly talking about his new survey ventures he's up to let's see what Evan's got to say anybody <laughs> did you have any um I guess oh, any I any like, sort of equipment damage you, you can claim from back in your journey <laughs> possibly there might have been a couple um I, I do remember one occasion when I was the nipper and I had the uh, I had the ute uh, well and truly overloaded with <laughs> split sets mesh and uh, hydraulic oil, and uh, in, in these room and pillar workings, we had had these um, ramps, like sort of switchback ramps that you'd sort of you'd you drive up into a bay and then you reverse up the next bit and you you sort of get um, quite high up these ramps. You'd look over the edge and be quite a quite a big drop off. And I remember one one day. Going, reversing back down one of these ramps full of full of all the gear <laughs> and that uh, got a bit too close to the edge and there's that feeling when you know you, you're going over the edge and yeah. Uh, yeah sure sure enough I went over oh and, really um, shit <laughs> ended up ended up down the bottom with uh, split sets and mesh everywhere and the, the ute on its side oh, and um, ducked around the corner and uh, got the the nearest bogger operator and we flipped it back up and we. <laughs> Chucked all the stuff back in. No one ever knew about it. Just, oh, just that, cost, cost me a few beers that night at the wet. That's wetness. what I was about to ask. It's one of those moments you stand there and you're like, right, how can I cover this up? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Not that you're supposed to report every incident, obviously, <laughs> but look, the automatic thing that goes through your head is like, right, how am I going to get out mm. of this? Have you, I guess, have you explored the avenues of this drone technology and Getting it underground, or is this being yeah? Look, it's something already. It's, it, it's something that I've um, have had my eye on for the last couple of years, and um, just sort of, I guess, watching that space at the moment. There, so um, yeah. So the the challenge with drones underground is GPS and the fact that you don't get it underground. <laughs> so um, um, without the GPS, obviously the, the drones can't. Um, navigate easily and if uh if you're relying on a human to fly a drone underground then you're gonna last about two minutes yeah and um but there there are there is uh, some new technology out there people people are working on this at the moment um there are some early systems now that um with that are um that use laser scanners um and can use that scanned data to navigate oh, okay uh, so, so what pretty... it like scans like as in saying there's a wall there don't bloody fly towards that is, is that's well that yeah so both well it's, it's a sort of bit more than that so it's collision avoidance um yeah. but also um getting a bit smarter than that and um and using using the data uh to to actually navigate with as well yeah. Um, so I can conduct some an automated or semi-automated flight. Um, so th- there is technology um, 
available now actually that you can, that can can do that but it's it's you know it's it's, it's early days yeah um it's pretty high cost and uh you usually not, don't <laughs> want to be first do you you no, want to no, wait no, to no, see them bugger uh, it up and get in later <laughs> yeah 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 it's very i think it, it at the moment yeah it's like buying the first flat screen telly so um yep. You, yep. it's uh um we're just keeping our eye on that. We'll, we'll see how that goes. But certainly over the next couple of years, there'll, there'll be some really good um, improvements made in that underground space, I think. Right, good on you, Evan. Thanks to all the NTech crew for having me in the office multiple times. As I said, heading back there end of the month to talk to Macca about the mine flood disaster is involved in. And he's also invited me on barbecue day. Can't wait. Can't wait. Looking forward to it. Now, I'll keep forgetting to tell you which episode numbers these are. I'm sure you can find them. Engineering Tips was number eight. Jonesy was number nine. Macca was number 16. Tristan, number 24. Evan, number 25. Now, next up, number 29, Bill Beeman. He's been on every every episode. You'd, you'd, you'd think he's a big deal or something. But anyway, I hit him up about Paulson's Northern Star's first asset and whether it was a bit of luck that the business has gone to where it is or it was actually some good business decisions. Here's what Bill's got to say. Oh, look, I um, I don't believe... I, I believe in life you make your own luck. And um, and it's quite often because I, I do hear some scuttlebutt every now and again, exactly what you said, you know, the guys, guys are lucky, it falls at their feet. But, you know, you're lucky once, but, mate, we've done eight Paulson's deals. Mm, exactly. And, yeah. you know, so... Um, you know, including our last one, Pogo, that'll end up being our best asset in our portfolio by a long shot in a couple of years' time. But um, so look, I I look at it like football, mate. Take you know, take Nat Fife or Andrew Gaff or Paddy Dangerfield. You know, they don't average thirty possessions every game for the year in year out by being lucky. They put yeah. in the hard work, the you know, the effort. They train, and they've got the talent. So it's no different. Like uh, I look at you know what we've done in Northern Star and Tate Paulson's is. You know, we had a fantastic team. You got to have a great team, and and I like I said, there's, there's no luck involved. Is we just, you know, had a great team, backed the team, gave them the resources to do it, um, and the rest has looked after itself. And yeah. we've always had that. You know, like our number one resource in Northern Star is our people, and I always yeah. say that because people will find you good projects, they'll mine it right, they'll do the hard yakka, they'll extend mine lives, and you know, improve productivities and, and improve profitability. So and create a sustainable business. So for me, um, yeah, I, I don't rest on luck. Yeah. Um, we've always got, you know, we've always got action B, C, D, and E in our organisation. A lot of people yeah. wouldn't realise that, but um, and we've had that from day dot. When mm. we first bought Paulson's, we had a plan. Uh, if you go back on the ASX and have a look at it, there was a plan before we took the keys. Yeah, um, it's no different how we do the rest of our business two years later. Right, good on you, Billy. Thanks for sparing some time in your busy schedule, mate. Much appreciated. And everyone still talks about that episode. Absolute legend. Next up, another corporate guru, Kate Somerville, VP of Mining for Goldfields. Had a great chat with Kate. She brought me some cupcakes around after she'd been jet-lagged on a big international flight. Absolute legend. So good meeting her. Anyway, we did a couple episodes with Kate, episodes 44 and 45. Uh, First one doing a journey map it's a you'd have to see the picture it's a, it's a bit different it's on a scale of throughout time throughout your career and the happiness level you're at bit of a reflection tool and also kate goes through when 
I guess her journey and plans for a career succession suddenly weren't going to plan and how she dealt with it. Real interesting yarn. Here's a bit of Kate. Yeah. Now this this journey map, so the the vertical axis we've got the I guess your feeling, your your happiness yes. level, zero to ten, and then the horizontal, your X axis is your time, I guess, and there's just up downs bloody going everywhere of where yeah. you've so when you when you did up this journey, I gather you've done this journey map after the whole journey's been taken place. Um I guess was a, it was a good for, way of reflecting on what you did. What did you get out of writing up this journey map? Yeah, so that was actually something that I got um, – actually, we did in Oxford, so I was doing a transformational leadership course there, and they kind of got you to do that with your journey because you could kind of work out when you were happy and when you were not happy yeah. and also realising when you needed to change or what triggered your changes. So it kind of was just reflecting, uh, you know, why you got into that situation and what you got to get out. So I think it's just, um, you know, most of the people who speak to you on your podcast and all those kind of things, you know, it looks like they've got everything together and they've always done really well and that's ne never the case. Everyone goes ups and downs and uh, they stay too long in a job and then they realise they need to change. Yeah. So it's just kind of reflecting of that and that's kind of with what I'm talking about today. I mean, when you're 26 years in the industry, it you know, you reflect on the good stuff you've done. There's good times and bad times. And um, I guess when I gave these talks as well, people came back and said, oh, you just made me feel like I'm asleep at the wheel in my career. Yeah. And I just went, no, I didn't want to make you feel like that at all. <laughs> so, yeah, and then they go in and quit no, the next no. day. Was there a high turnover right after you? Oh, <laughs> so, so you know, we had an internal uh, Goldfields kind of young mining engineer get together just the other week and yep. um, I reflected on that. And so I said the key message to the ghost, those guys, I said, look, I really didn't make you want to feel like that. I wanted to share some of the things that have helped me, you know, be better or have change. But I just want, you know, the message to them is just to say don't be asleep. You know, if, you, if, if, if this is what came back to me, just make sure you're checking every year on where you are yep. and, you know, you might need to make a change. Or you know, you just just sit down and take the time to reflect. <laughs> right, next picture. Uh, what have we got? Over the rainbow resilience. So we've got a picture of a some form of waste dump, I assume. Yeah, uh, that's isn't that a. That, so this one, this is about the iron ore story. Do you like that? There's a picture of a rainbow over a. Um, a rainbow wave. Oh, is that what I didn't even notice yeah, that. yeah, yeah, yeah. So the guys actually found that. I went out to look after the plant as a plant manager, and um, we had the shift books. And the guys thought that they wanted to beautify the office because I was the first lady coming out there, and uh, and they thought they they would want to make a pretty picture for the shift boss book as well, or the yeah. the shift change. But this story is about resilience, I guess. Um, you know, we go through ups and downs in in mining. Times are good, times are bad. Yeah. Um, a lot of people go through retrenchments and um, have hard times, and uh, then get a bit down and a bit up. And I guess this one was a story that I had um, that I was at a mine site when they were taking over. We decided um, to buy out the contractor, and then was kind of a restructure. Yeah. And at the two mines, two positions were affected. Um, and that they were, they're both the mine manager and I was the mine manager. So yeah. both of us were pretty annoyed that yeah. we weren't going to be the mine managers and um, I got pretty down. And, yeah. um, and So that was about a one or a two on your journey map, I That imagine. was pretty down. That was yeah. pretty, pretty because I just won these women in mining awards. I was doing well in my job. Yeah. You know, um, it didn't matter what anyone said to me. I just, I was really down on myself about it to yeah. the point where, you know, even afterwards, um 
even afterwards, it appeared to people like I'd been retrenched, but I actually just quit uh, in the end. But I went to, um, I tried, you know, I went to the, uh, you know, the, the help services to try and make sure that I wasn't like going to- Yeah, 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 to make sure right. I wasn't going to hurt myself because they said, you can't tell anyone about this. And so, I had to keep it a secret that we were taking so you, over you a contractor. You were in that dark of a place. I was in a really, really dark place. Yeah, right. and, and they said, you can't tell anyone. So, I didn't. I didn't tell my husband. I didn't tell my family. And Which it was just- the worst a, thing you can worst do. Worst thing you yeah. can do because I need to talk. Yeah. And then I rang up the help, the, the help service and they weren't very helpful because one of them just said, oh, we thought about having kids. And I went, that's not helpful. <laughs> <laughs> this is really not a helpful outcome. <laughs> I, just went, I just went, oh, my God. Oh, so, I might have been a first day. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. But anyway, it was it was not that helpful. But, um, but yeah, it was just really down and uh, and I've been pretty lucky in my whole career. That's kind of really the only time that I've been close to kind of being in a situation where I wasn't in, in charge of what I wanted to do with my career. Yeah. So, yeah, it was about getting the help that I needed and uh, making sure I was doing the exercise. And I just think it's just so important to have something other than work to yeah. keep you happy and positive. Yeah. And um, also I was on a board at the time with the OSIMM, so that was also my little family outside my family. Yeah. But at the end of the day, I just said, yeah, I'm going to do what I need to do to get to a point. I'm going to get someone trained up and to take my role and then I'm, a, I'm just going to have a break. So yeah. it had been kind of 10 or 11 years and I thought, well, it's actually time to do something new now. Right, thanks very much, Kate. Hope you had a good Christmas break, mate. You very much deserve it. As you said, too many frequent flyer points and platinum cards means you haven't got much of a social life. Hope you had a pub lunch, mate. Now, next up, my first ever underground manager, Darren Strahlo. What a poor bastard. Dealing with me as a snotty-nosed little prick. We had a good laugh about that. Episodes 48 and 49, we did two with Stralo. First, in the first one about himself, we talk a bit about like gold price, volatility and hedging, a bit of the business side of things, and good yarn about Stralo doing his underground time, popping oversize. Uh, it's a good yarn, that one. Hilarious. And the second episode we did was about, I guess, Stralo's passion for nurturing the graduates and bringing them in, in the industry. and. We talk about sort of what makes an attractive CV as a mining graduate. Here's what Stralo's had to say. You know, what we sort of sit and think as a, as a company, and, you know, this is all stuff that's done at a board level, right? But, um, you know, Bill talks about it in, in some of the presentations and, and Q&A sessions and stuff that he does. But you want to protect those sort of budget outcomes. So, you, you know, you come out with your guidance, which is based on your budget, saying we're going to produce X amount of ounces this year at X amount of costs meaning we're going to make this much revenue. Uh, you make capital investment decisions in you know, expansion of mines, infrastructure, everything that's based on getting that money in the door. Mm. Uh, so what you what is smart sort of fiscally to do is to lock in some of that revenue. So that's what hedging is. Yep. So hedging is, you know, we, for example, will forward sell somewhere between 20 to 40% of our gold Yep. Uh, revenue and that's over a couple of years and what that does is that just locks in that stuff and we tend to do that uh, at a level that is above where we set our budgets so it just helps justify all those capital decisions that you make because you know there is a lot of capital that goes into into running a mine and yep. running a you know a lot of mines yep um, by locking that in, it's just it's just smart. It's protecting your shareholders. It's like an insurance policy. Yep. Uh, but you do want to make sure you're retaining some of that upside, particularly in a um, you know in an environment where the gold price is going up. You know that's what a lot of investors are in you for, right? So 
um, you know, people can invest in just physical gold or, you know, gold ETFs or, or the metal. So when the metal goes up by 3% or, or whatever, um, they enjoy that. But yep. as a gold mining company, we're leveraged to that upside in the gold price and the downside in the gold price. Yep. Uh, so people don't want us to just hedge all of our production because then they know, um, okay, that is defined definite outcome. Our investors will take differing views on what gold's going to do and that might be why they're in or not in uh, our stock. Remember when I was doing my charge-up time, we were mining down in the 80 series at Lawler's and we'd fired out the, the whole access. So we had big, massive stoke void and big hanging wall exposure. Yep. Um, we're down there. I was on night shift um, and I was charged in with this guy called Jamie Salt. And we were we were called up to, I think it was the 87 level access. And um, there was a big giant bundy that had fallen off the backs that was just sitting in the access, just blocking access to, to everything. It was probably about five meters out past the brow. And Jackie's like, can you boys get a couple of, you know, Anfo bags on a stick, get it under it and, um, and try and blow the rock up. And we went, okay, sure. So we're trying to make, you know, we're making these contraptions to, to get yeah. some bomb underneath it. And in the end, um, we just got a big, like, bulker bag of Ampho, <laughs> pushed that out underneath. Not like a, not a full bulker, oh, an empty bulker. Kilo no, no, you wouldn't be able to. So we pushed that out so it was sort of wedged under the rock, yep. put some debts in it, and then just started pumping Ampho into it. Yep. And Salty's like, Oh, we got enough. I'm like, oh, it's a pretty big rock. Like it was the size of a of a living room, right? It was like the size of the, of the office that we're yeah, sitting right. in now. But it was this giant, like, really solid looking looking bundy. And um, I'm like, nah, a little bit more, Jamie. A little bit more. A little bit more. And we pulled it out. Uh, Jackie's come down and see and and seen us, and he's gone. Um, he goes, how's it going to go, Stralo? And I said, it'll go bang. But for all the good that it's going to do, I might as well run up and fucking kick it, you know? Because <laughs> And he goes, okay, no worries. Uh, I remember firing it because um, we were firing off uh, off the stinger, um, but I was standing in the decline. I was, I was not close to it. I was, yeah, I was up the yeah. decline a bit, but I remember pressing the button and my miner's hat just got blown <laughs> off the top of my head. <laughs> I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> She's gone bang all right. Uh, so, I went up top. I told, I told Jackie. Um, he had a bit, of a bit of a chuckle and then, you know, I went home, had a sleep, got into work. <laughs> You know, for the next shift. So that night, I got uh, I got called into the foreman's office. You know, come on, Stralo, come into the foreman's office. We'll have a chat to you. Um, and we sat down across the table, like the um, the mine foreman, Jackie. And he's like, uh, "Do you know why you're here, mate?" And I'm like, "Not really." And Jackie goes, "You must have one hell of a fucking boot on you, mate, because we'd blown up the vent wall that was just around the corner." Oh, really? <laughs> Cut probably a hundred kilos of unconfined explosives. So, so the first thing we had to do that night was, uh, you know, get out in the IT and put up a little parachute over the blown out uh, vent wall that was around the corner as penance for uh, oh. for blowing it up. And you know what? The rock was in like the biggest piece of that rock would have been the size of a fucking football, <laughs> so mate. We blew job. the shit out of it. Uh. If you have that ability to talk, you know, to all levels. Uh, within an organization, like if you can go and talk to the truck driver, then go talk to the engineer, then talk to the underground manager, then talk to the GM, and then and then be able to have conversations with everyone. Mm. That is what you know, modern day professionals are, are moving more towards. Um, 
you know, seeing that as a as a really good trait to have. Yeah. So if you have that communication piece from a from an early age, then then that sort of sets you sets you apart. Yeah. Um. You know, there are ways to get that for people that that don't have it. You know, like um, a lot of the the young guys now are getting into these like Toastmasters clubs and stuff like that, and that takes them out of their comfort zone and gets them into into communicating better. Um. You know, joining joining clubs and doing stuff. I mean, one thing that I like to say when I go to unis is that, you know, if I have two two CVs in front of me for a grad job and I've got to choose between one of them and there's one where a guy's got a, you know, 85% average and has just done nothing but study his whole, uh, his whole uni degree or and there's another guy next to it who's got a 65 average but, you know, he was involved in the, you know, the mining club and was, you know, president of the, or not, maybe not even president, but if they were, a, you know, a member of the Oz IMM and, and they played sport, basketball yeah. for, for this, then that that's actually a more attractive CV to me because I know that, you know, this is someone that is going to be able to perform in a team and uh, and be able to interact with other people. And that's such a big part of, of mining is not just being individually brilliant. It's about being able to, to practically apply the theory that you learn when you're at um, when you're at uni, so yep. so having that mix of uh, being a team member and and having some uh, you know extracurricular activities, I think is just as important as as having you know super good grades. Oh, good on you, Stralo. Thanks very much, mate. Thanks very much for putting up with me too for the short period I was with you. You're probably glad to see the back of me. Don't answer that. Anyway, next up, Mal Major, business line manager for Loden Hall, APAC, Sandvik. What an absolute legend of a bloke. Probably the nicest bloke I know. And Mal, we had a great yarn with Mal. We had a couple episodes with Mal, one about himself again, number 50, and 51 was about some of the new technology we're going to see in the mining industry, courtesy of Sandvik, who would have thought shamelessly promoting. And this little snippet we talk about guess the future of battery power underground specifically about Sandvik's acquisition of artisan let's see what big male major's got to say what it, it's doing it today right but uh, you've only got a finite uh, amount of battery power yep. so uh, and and let's talk about the uptake globally so and yeah shamelessly um, promoting that we purchased artisan um, vehicle systems at the start of the year right so they're underground trucks and loaders uh, a full battery swap Yep. All right. So when you say full battery swap, well, is, is that you essentially taking the taking the diesel engine out, putting a battery in? Yep. And, and it has you know traction motors, and whether it's truck or loader, depending on how many traction motors it has. And you know we're talking about a, a forty ton, fifty ton truck uh, that they can have a full battery swap in eight minutes. Yep. You know these things are running for. Full oh, sorry, of- I, I misunderstood. You're saying to, when your battery's out, you change the batteries in eight full minutes. Full battery yep. swap. Yep. yep. So, and that's self-swapping, yep. you know, so there, there's that technology out there. Yep. Um, that's adopted in Canada and North um, in America uh, in their mines because predominantly they're shafts, so there's um, a lot less uh, declines. Now, apply that to the Australian market when you've got these long, you know, up to 13-kilometre declines like Gualia. Mm-hmm. It's just not going to happen, right? So we're going to see diesel around for some time or some, some kind of mix within yep. that, how that should look. Yep, and you're talking about like when you say mix, I assume there's going to be hybrid, and the 422i is an example of a hybrid. 
yeah, a and, hybrid and, version. Yeah, I mean, and hybrid is a mix of technologies. So yeah. um, if you have a look and um, there's diesel, electric, there's, you know, with batteries, there's uh, all, all sorts of different stuff and it could be trolley, you know, um, see trolley have a comeback. Yeah. So, and, and hence why we've taken um, a, a, a strong interest in what diesel uh, engines are doing in underground. Yeah. With the question I've always got about battery power in terms of, like having the you know having enough battery power to to get you through but where where's the balance between the energy that goes into making these batteries the fossil fuels that are used to make all these batteries to provide this battery power it it, it seems like the the more more batteries that are made the fossil fuels to generate the materials to make the batteries there it's just it's like a whole another side of the argument yeah. in a sense uh, and, and, and electrics is a far more efficient way so that's i, I think has been the drive predominantly for that uh, and i won't argue from the surface because there's all sorts you know you're seeing crazy stuff on um social media about there's a diesel generator charging a tesla mm. you know and, and that you know doesn't uh, make sense but what does make sense is having battery um, or electrics underground by not having diesel yeah because and that's and i think that's in that environment where you do have ventilation concerns and you know we can all talk about um, the impact on health uh, but if you're not putting uh, that exhaust emissions underground then you're not going to have that and it's something else yeah so it makes more sense in underground as it does anywhere else Oh, good on you, Mal. As I said, nicest bloke I've met all year, and I've met a few. Hope you're having a good little New Year's break, Mal. Anyway, next up, Richard Butcher, Executive Vice President for Technical at Goldfields. Anyway, Richard talks specifically about modernisation in the mining industry. What that is, you'll have to listen to the episode to find out. Episode number 54, and a little bit about what Goldfields are doing long-term to harness new technology and go forth with their modernisation. Let's see what Richard had to say. Well, I think the bottom line is, let's look at this way. It's important that the, the tail doesn't wag the dog, right? This stuff is about making our business better and more efficient and making the business more efficient and safer and safer for the people. That's that's what the focus of this stuff is. So if you're, you're generally in the mining, technical, operational point, you should be focused on these things. And this technology is just really a tool to achieve this. Um, what's become very, very apparent within the last couple, five, ten years is that all our society is changing. If you look around, you look at the amount of digitization we have in society, you look at, say, the way in which people, the new generation of people which is coming through in society, the millennials, the generation Y, think very, very differently about the businesses. So what it's saying is there's a whole shift in our society. And if we don't understand that society is changing, and society's always changed, and the people in our industry are going to be very, very different, the social expectations of our people are going to be very different. If you look at that, in terms of that, then there's no way we can stand still and we have to start to think about modernizing the mining industry. And that probably started to really hit me about, say, seven, eight years ago, that we probably, even though we needed to continue to improve, but we really needed a shift in our business. 
The other one which really hit me was, if you remember back in 2012, when the mining boom came in and there was a slash for cash, a lot of folk lost their jobs. We tend to go through cycles of feast and famine. You're either hiring, firing, people are, are either on the street or we can't get people. That is not a sustainable thing for people in the mining street to have. Continue either you're either earning big money or you're losing. There's no way we as an industry can sustain. So the need to actually get our costs better, the need to work more efficiently, just to add stability to our industry. And that became very, very embedded for me in about 2012. Oh, good on you, Richard. Hopefully we can have another yarn this year, mate. See well, how the modernisation project within Goldfields is, how the traction's going. Right, next up, finally, we squeezed this one in just before the end of 2019, and it was the best of the year. I think I've said that about every episode, but this one was the best. Graham Crew, Chief Operating Officer for Golden Star Resources. Golden Star's got a couple of mines in Ghana. And... Oh, what a legend of a bloke. Learnt shitloads off Crewy. Now, we talked about how he was burnt out back in the day as a project manager, the darker days of his career, you'd say. And we'll obviously talk about what he's up to with Golden Star Resources these days in Ghana. Here's a bit of Graham Crew. Now, your LinkedIn profile. Yep. I'll look, I'll look through that and it's... It's just like confused. Well, not yeah, we're a bit confused, but you just see this. Media, we'll say meteoric, right? Meteoric. Still, still working out what he's going to do when he grows yeah, up. Yeah, but it's like, but just such a. You could see a pathway of this bloke that's got to now. He's a chief operating officer. He's, he's like, he's like, I always wanted to have chief in front of my name. <laughs> and you automatically think, right? This yeah. guy's got it together. What such a successful career? But um, it's the same as Facebook. I think Facebook. When you watch all these people putting their photos on every week, you're just seeing the highlight reel of how happy they are. Yeah, and yeah, all these yeah. You're seeing, you're seeing moments, the, the advertorial of their life, yeah. not not the reality. The reality, yeah. yeah. Now, in this bloody this flash highlight of your LinkedIn profile, what have there been any dark days? The like chat, really challenging days. That d- during this rise to where you are now, <laughs> what, what did you do to get through it? Were there any? Is it is the LinkedIn profile just true? Uh, no, that the, the LinkedIn profile is definitely the highlight package. You, you're absolutely right, and you know we all portray this you know best foot forward. Um, we touched on something earlier um, before we even started. I think Manny about. Um, uh, being a project manager and you know one of my darkest days was my first job as a project manager for McMahon's um, and it was on a job it was on a job that was losing money like month in month out was losing money um, it was it was a struggle to keep people because obviously we were trying to keep costs down and um, and you know I being my first one, I really struggled with, um, I guess I was a little bit back to where I was in my shift bossing days where, you know, I was trying to take a full accountability for the whole thing and, um, you know, doubting myself and almost blaming myself in a lot of ways. And, um, you know, I'd work from, I'd be up at four in the morning and sometimes I'd be getting back to my room at, 10 at night and uh, just doing crazy things like that and 
probably not really getting anywhere and probably actually getting worse but not having clarity of thought so you know that you know that that experience for me was pretty frightening um you know and you, and you talk about mental health and well-being and and i don't think i was in a healthy place at that point in time so probably both physically and mentally totally i mean uh, yeah. I, and um you know, I remember it was was fly and fly out. I had two small children, so Mitch, who's now twenty one, was um, two and a bit, and Jamie, who's now nineteen, was you know was under one. And um, you know, and I remember getting home, you know, fly in day. You know, Jenny had come out to the airport, picked me up. I'd be, I'd get home and I'd be asleep on the couch, you know, within an hour of getting home. I was that mentally exhausted. And um and and, you know, apparently, I never saw this, but apparently like twitching in my sleep and talking yeah, in my right. sleep. And yeah. Um yeah, I don't uh, probably that point in time I probably wasn't in a great great place mentally. You know, and I told you this great story before about how um, you know, I'd really grown as a ship boss and I probably regressed a bit in that point in time. Yeah. Uh, when I got to Wassa, um, I would take Wassa pretty well anywhere in the world. Yeah. Um, and that's a, that's a 98% Ghanaian workforce. There's a few, few expats in there, but you know, the general manager, is Ghanaian, that the mine manager is Ghanaian. Yeah. Um, I think some of those people have had the the experience of working for international companies, yeah. uh, which which helps them. Uh, Prestia, you know, is a mine that's been constrained by infrastructure and, you know, some of the infrastructure there is aging. So that's probably a little bit different, but that's probably more akin to what I saw in Tanzania, uh, but Wasser I would take anywhere. So, yeah, probably surprised on the upside in, mm. in a lot of cases. Right, good on you, Crewy, and thanks again to everyone else that got involved in the corporate technical area this year. Some people doubled up, especially Bill Beeman. Thanks very much. Awesome year for 2019. Plenty more to come. Plenty more to come in 2020. Now, before I go out, another mention about the bushfires. Please donate some money. Have a think about all of them. Have them in your thoughts at least. And good on your firefighters. Keep up the bloody good work. Stay safe, please. If you, if you can in a fire, I'm not sure. But, yeah, we're all thinking of you. Righto, over and out, everyone. Have a great weekend. Hooroo.